Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm the host of the show. And like Jeff, I am also a certified financial planner professional. This show is all about helping you discover what matters most and helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb in the greater Atlanta area. All right, Jeff, here we are in the middle of May, but it might as well be a sort of an upside down, unusual world and uncertain time. So right. we, re we pre-recorded yeah. our April episode because of uh, disruptions in my life, not the coronavirus, but the, uh, <laughs> the the upgrades to our studio here. So it's been a while since we've talked. How, how are you holding up? Right. Yeah, we're, we're doing well. I mean, I, it, it's um, like everyone else in the world, I suppose. I mean, that's what's unique. We're all in this together in that regard is all of our lives have been turned upside down. So we've spent the last 60 days primarily just focusing on our clients and trying to stay in relationships as best we can in this digital video conferencing world. And, uh, you know, we came into this year with about 15 projects that we wanted to focus on. And we just shoved all of those to the side of the desk and made sure that we focused on being with our, our clients and our friends and making sure that they're okay and that they understand their financial plans and how they, how they fit. Uh, but we also try not to waste the crisis either. I mean, I, I, and part of me doesn't want to go back to the old world exactly like it was in some respects. I want to learn some lessons from this. Uh, so we are trying to find out what are the right lessons to learn as we as we move forward. What about you and the KFG guys? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there are blessings in this. There, there, you know, there's pain and there's struggle and there, there's uh, all that. But there's blessings <clears throat> in this. And we certainly are blessed here. And, uh, and, and, and have just like you, you know, priorities are relationships and helping people and guiding people. And, you know, that's your role. That's my role. And as, as stewards of, of, uh, the people that we're called to lead. So, um, anyway, I, I know you're super excited about today's podcast and our special guest. So why don't you introduce her? I, I really am. Um, so a couple of, about a year and a half ago or so early in 2019, a client sent me a, a paper from the Harvard business review from our guest today. And the title of the article is a time for happiness. And these clients have been with me for a long, long time. And they sent me the article. And the one thing they said was, this sounds like our conversations, because as you know, in the work that we do in our firm, you know, the financial planning and the investments and the money is really for a purpose. And that purpose is to live a great life and to have a life of meaning and purpose. And really, that's kind of what this show is about. How do we encourage people to go deeper, to find out what really matters so that they can get their actions and resources in alignment with their, with their goals and their purpose. And, you know, so I, I use that term return on life a lot. And so when I read this article, it just nailed me. So I've been stalking her <laughs> ever since. And she's been really busy because she's been writing a book that I hope she'll tell us a little bit about later. So Dr. Ashley Willens is a associate professor at Harvard Business School, and she's really become one of the leading scholars in the area of 
researching happiness and time and the intersection of happiness and time. Uh, she got a PhD in social psychology at the University of British Columbia. Um, she's a superstar in this area now. Um, so she's won a lot of awards and, um, you know, she's part of a, uh, the Global Happiness Council and the Workplace and Wellbeing Initiative at Harvard. Um, and she speaks at a lot of nonprofits. She prevent, uh, provides a lot of time in research to nonprofits and to for-profits. She's gotten really prevalent in the last couple of years, I think, with uh, white papers and articles and quotes. She's been quoted by every major publication, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and all those kinds of things. So it's really, it's really a pleasure. And as I mentioned, she's got a book coming out in October called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. So welcome, Professor Willens, to the Money and Meaning Show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited about this, um, as I mentioned, because again, the whole reason I created my Money and Meaning initiative, so I have this podcast that we do, I have a workshop that we do, it's really just trying to help people understand um, to move from, you know, to a, a life of purpose and meaning and that the financial resources can be a means to that end, but it's not the end. Um, and so your work has been really fascinating as we've looked at some of the things that you've written about time and, and happiness. So uh, I know you have a really interesting journey. So do you mind, before we start, I always like just to get a feel and let the audience hear who you are. So can you tell us a little about yourself and your background and how you, got, uh, how you found yourself at Harvard College? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, uh, I, one of my favorite happiness researchers is Dan Gilbert, who's also a professor um, at Harvard in the psychology department. Um, and I used to be, so I think what you're referring to is that I used to be a professional actor uh, before right. I was a researcher. Right. Um, and I went to theater school. So I was, you know, doing the whole like serving at night and auditioning by day, and I did a little bit parts. One of my most famous claims to fame is the movie Juno. Uh-huh. Um, I was like Polly Bleeker's girlfriend. Okay. Uh, I, AKA the stink eye girls. So <laughs> okay. there's this like two second scene where it's like, your girlfriend gave me the stink eye in art class yesterday. <laughs> that's not my girlfriend. And that's just the way her face looks. Yeah. It's just her face. And then this girl makes this like a stinky face and that's my face. And that oh, was perfect. like, <laughs> so that's what that you're known like, for in your yeah. acting career. <laughs> I was such perfect. a serious actor at the time. And the only thing I'm known for is this two second silly clip in some, uh, you know, Hollywood movie, but I'll take it, I guess you gotta yeah, take perfect. it where it comes. Yeah. And I went to theater school, um, kind of thinking I was going to devote my whole life to being an actor. And when I went to theater school, I was more of the nerd in the library, uh, so I'd be sitting reading about the historical context of which my characters lived, where everyone else would be learning blocking and lines. Uh, I wasn't very good at those things. I learned quickly in theater school that maybe acting really wasn't for me. And I decided to go back to college. And, and that's where I read Dan Gilbert's book called Stumbling on Happiness. And it really makes the point that you're not going to know what makes you happy until you kind of see it or experience it. Mm-hmm. And that whole book really opened my eyes to this really exciting field of positive psychology, this idea that we have so much control. It's very optimistic, actually. It says we have a lot of control over the meaning and purpose and happiness that we have in our lives because so much of our well-being is driven by 
things that we intentionally do, our actions, our intentional actions on an everyday basis, um, largely predict the joy that we experience, the quality of our social relationships. And I found that to be a very optimistic and uplifting message. Yeah. Well, you know, a first year psych student going back to school, being broke, having just like given up one career and was sort of stumbling on my own path to what was next, living on my parents' couch. I, you know, I was like, wow, you know, I don't need to feel so bad about myself. A lot of my future is in my control. And there's this really interesting field that I can learn from and participate in. And his student had just gotten a job at the University of British Columbia. So I read his book in college and kind of stalked my former advisor. Uh, she, yeah. she was like, I don't know who you are and why are you uh, like, you don't have any research experience, so I don't want to hire you. And I just knocked on her door enough times that she finally gave me a chance to be a student as an undergrad in her lab. And I never looked back. I did grad school at UBC. Interesting. And she yeah. studies uh, the link between money and happiness in terms of pro-social behavior and happiness. So giving money away, she finds is better for happiness than keeping it for oneself, but people don't predict that. And my whole dissertation really follows on that general idea that we need to not only be thinking about money as a means to an end, but money as a tool for increasing our happiness, depending on how we spend it, either spending it to help others, or as my dissertation research and now my book says, spending it to have more and better time. Okay. Well, I want to get into that in a moment. That's that's really cool. That's part of where I want to go with these, this discussion. But um, you know, in a time for happiness, the the first article that I saw spoke a lot about that, about how it is satisfying to create some time. And but one of the things that you just said, which I think is encouraging, you know, there's just so much in life that we have no control over. Um, and I think our default assumption is that we have no control over our happiness because we think it's circumstantial. You know, if my life is good, I'm happy. If my life is bad, I'm unhappy. When in, I guess your research suggests maybe that's not always the case that you have more control and your circumstances does not equal necessarily happiness or unhappiness. There are other, there are other factors, but one of the things that, um, so we had one of your colleagues from, we didn't have your colleague, but we did the book. We did deep work uh, from Cal Newport, who is I think at MIT. So he's up the street there. Um, uh, so we didn't have him on the show, but we did a review of the book. And one of the things he talked a lot about how we're so distracted and how we're so busy and we're being yelled at by the iPhone and by the instant messenger um, that we don't take a lot of time. And you use a term called time poverty. Can you tell us a little bit? And I saw this in one of your podcasts and you really explained it very eloquently. Do you mind catching us up again on what is time poverty? And, 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 and I think you used the term time confetti too, which is a term I hadn't heard before. So tell us what that is. What is, what is time poverty and why do we have it? Time poverty is this feeling of having too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. And if that is resonating with you as you're listening to that yeah. definition, it's because 80% of working Americans feel time poor, like they have too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. And these feelings of time poverty can have overwhelmingly negative effects for our mood, our stress. So they uh, encourage really high levels of stress and they can undermine our social relationships. So people who feel time poor are more likely to be obese because they eat less healthy, they're less likely to exercise, they have more strained relationships and they're even more likely to get divorced. And these feelings of time poverty are actually at an all time high and can predict misery to the same extent, even to a greater extent than financial poverty in some of the data that I've, I've, wow. I've collected. Um, and it is related. So I, m part of my research is understanding the consequences of 
being time poor um, and looking at where, where time poverty comes from. Um, so this goes with this idea of time confetti. So it's okay. interesting. You could think like, we're just time poor because we work more hours, but objectively we have a little bit more leisure time than we used to in previous right. decades because we have things like laundry machines that we don't have to hand wash our laundry and watch it dry. So people today actually have more objective leisure time than they did in the 1950s because of, you know, takeout. Yeah, yeah, modern yeah. conveniences. But this feeling of time poverty is driven not only by the objective amount of time we have, but how we feel about that time. And so time confetti is this idea that, you know, our leisure, even though we have more of it, is more distracted because we have our phones, our technology. This goes with the idea of deep work that we're constantly being pinged. We are constantly, right. um, you know, being responsive to alerts from colleagues, interruptions, phone calls, emails, right. and that this creates time confetti, which is you are basically chunking up that one hour of leisure that maybe you have kind of before dinner or after into a whole bunch of bite-sized pieces that feel really unsatisfying. So we enjoy that leisure less. We feel more stressed out about it. And as a result, we feel more time poor as opposed to less. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I, so I'm, uh, I'm a patient here. I, cause I'm guilty of, uh, I have, I have time poverty and, I'm one of those as well that feels unproductive. You know, if I've got time and I'm not doing something, I'm unproductive. And, but now I'm more aware, but I'm still finding myself making the same mistakes. And I remember reading something from uh, Daniel Kahneman a while back, who was a famous behavioral economic, uh, you know, a professor, tons of great books about uh, behavioral finance. And he said, as much as I study all this, I still make the same behavioral mistakes, even though I'm an expert. So tell me about yourself or, or do professors who study happiness, do they run into some of these same traps as, as, the, as the mere mortals like the as, rest of us? As you're, as you're asking this question, I'm just shaking my head. Um, me and my colleagues have a joke, do what we say and not what we do. Um, <laughs> and part of why I wrote this book is because I, you know, I was a junior faculty member I had, I was felt like I was working all the time and that, you know, I study time and money trade-offs and my whole dissertation was on how we should focus more on time, even if it comes at the expense of making more money. Here I was, junior professor, Harvard Business School, definitely had sacrificed a lot of time to be in the position I was in. My personal relationships were suffering. Um, you yeah. know, I had just gotten a divorce. Uh, oh, wow. um, like my best friend was uh, uh, pregnant and I couldn't be there for her. One of my cousins uh, uh, unfortunately passed away and I was unable to go home because I was in the middle of teaching semester. And so here I was basically living the opposite of what my research what you're studying. Yeah. And, and so I wrote this book really because I was like, well, if it's so hard for me when I've spent years of my life uh, studying how time is more important than money, if it's so hard for me to live that truth, other people must be struggling too. So the book is really meant to kind of take what we know from science because it's obvious. It's like, yeah, yeah, we should focus more on time and social relationships. Sure, sure. Right. It's kind of a similar mentality that we have around healthy eating and exercise. Yeah, yeah, we know we should exercise more and be on the couch less, but it's really hard to put these right. like facts Inactious. into action. And yeah. so, you know, I turned to the behavioral science literature to both kind of say, how can we start, like what what is necessary to kind of take 
this broad value around time and social relationships and make it an actionable truth. Um, how do I communicate that? And then how do I try to live it in my own life? So the book is a little bit of like my own trying to take some of my research and put it into practice in a very tangible way, while also recognizing that, you know, just like exercise and diet, we can't be perfect all the time. That expectation is too high. We need to kind of lower the bar. We need to be thinking about how can I be mindful in five, 10, 30 minute increments, just like we need to lower the bar for ourselves. Right. For exercise, we need to be proud of ourselves for going outside or doing a bit of stretching or doing a short yoga video versus putting all this pressure on ourselves to like train for a half marathon. Otherwise we're never going to get there. Check it off. Yeah. 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 So, so again, the book is time smart, how to reclaim your time and live a happier life. So when you're referring to the book, you have uh, life hacks or advice on these kinds of things. I mean, is that the idea kind of walk through some of your experiences and kind of mix both your life experience and the research into yeah. some actionable ideas. Is that, yeah, exactly. So like yeah. to give you a couple of concrete examples, right? So we were just talking about one thing that we found in my research and that we were just talking about is it's really easy to be distracted. And so that can get in the way of doing deep work or just focusing on other priorities that you have outside of work. I mean, I have a similar profession in some sense, although, you know, content wise different from what you both do, but, you know, I have students and I want to be responsive to them. I have colleagues that I work with and I want to seem like a good colleague, but I also have to manage my own, you know, personal deep work and my own fitness and personal goals. And so we have devised this intervention called pro time or proactive time, where we actually get people to sit down with themselves, have a meeting with themselves for 30 minutes on a day of their choosing and to plan two to three hours of what we call proactive time, what you might think of deep work time, where right. they're not allowed to be on their cell phone, they're not allowed to schedule meetings, and they can work on anything that's important, either for their personal life or their career, but isn't urgent. You know, because so much of what our cell phones and email tells us is urgent, 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 creates a sense of stress and urgency that gets in the way of doing deep work or accomplishing personal goals that take longer. And so even this simple pro time intervention, if you do it for a couple of weeks, you feel lower levels of burnout, um, you feel less stressed, and it's even more effective if you know your manager and your colleagues are on board with you too. Supporting so it, then, yeah. 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 So that's yeah. just like a concrete example of some kind of taking this yeah. time value and trying to put it into action in our everyday lives to fight time confetti, to fight time poverty. Yeah, I, I, I do those kinds of things, but something that I do is when I make those times that I'm thinking about what I'm gonna be doing in the future, I always underestimate the amount of time that I have. And so occasionally I'll commit to things and have regrets. And you talk a little bit about temporal discounting. And I know mm -hmm. Annie Duke talks a little bit about this in thinking in bets in a different context, of course. But um, so this is about being intentional about your commitments in a way. So can you explain that briefly? Yeah. So there's this idea in the intertemporal discounting uh, literature, which is just basically like how you think about yourself in the future. Um, and are you good at predicting your future self and your future situations or not? Right. Um, and we find that with money, people are pretty good at estimating slack. So like if you tell me that, you know, if you tell me to think about the value of a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars or fifty dollars that I have now and then think about the value of that fifty dollars, ten thousand dollars, thousand dollars in three months and one year, we don't discount that value. We're like, no, that 
amount of money is going to be as valuable to me today as it is in three months, as it is in 12 months. But with time, we're terrible at recognizing the value of our future time. So Gail Zaberman um, uh, has a paper on this showing that we heavily discount the value of our future time. So when we're thinking about a windfall of half an hour, an hour, two hours, we want it a lot. Like we think that that's highly valuable now because we're super busy. We're in the middle of our day. We have a million things that we're doing. In three months, we're like, nah, we like that time's not that valuable. In right. six months, it falls off a cliff. A year, you're like, oh, I'll have all the time in the world in a year. Um, and so this future time slack or this intertemporal discounting that we do with regard to the amount of time that we think we're going to have in the future means that we're constantly in this world where we overcommit our future time. And so you've probably heard like some people in the time management literature actually say like, you know, saying no is the best kind of protection against being stressed and overwhelmed in the future, but how you get there behaviorally is reminding yourself you're gonna be as busy tomorrow, you know, as you are in three, like, or busy rather in three months as you are tomorrow. Right. So you really actually need to do some mental gymnastics to make better decisions around time in the future because we overestimate the amount of free time that we're gonna have tomorrow as compared to today. Yeah, but it comes naturally for us to think that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's kind of nice in some ways. Again, like, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. We're like kind of being almost like overly optimistic that we'll be less right. busy in the future. And maybe that makes us more committed to our, the things that matter, like our jobs. Like maybe it would be stressful to think we're going to be as busy at our jobs or in our lives uh, right. in three months and six months. Maybe that would make us feel stressed out in the moment. So I don't think it's necessarily a, like it, it, that bias exists for a reason, probably. Yeah. But yeah. but it does make us make your, your seemingly irrational or less positive decisions about our future time. Like we we say yes way more than we should, for example, because we discount the value of our time. We don't think tomorrow. how busy we'll be in the future, right? Yeah. yeah. So you can settle a disagreement I have with my spouse. Um, so I get a lot of in, enjoyment out of travel and experiences. And she does too. So I don't want to uh, throw her under the bus here, but, uh, but she likes nice things more than I do, you know, like furniture or, you know, um, a, a nicer home as an example. And I thought the research indicated that experiences tend to give us more joy than things. I guess those experiences in relationships, I think there's a correlation there. Is that, am I on track here? What can I use in my uh, conversation with my spouse about this? <laughs> So I think you should always preface by saying you're both right on some dimensions. Okay. <laughs> so it's always a good way to start off a conversation with your spouse, right? right? right. It's like, well, you That's know, right. we're both correct. Uh, we'll That's be able right. to kind of split the difference here. So right. there is, you're totally right in the sense that experiences are one way that we can spend our money to promote greater happiness and on material things. Um, and it's really important to think about happiness on many dimensions. You can think about how much happiness you get from something in anticipation, how much happiness you're getting in the moment of consumption and how much happiness you're getting in reflection. And so experiences are great in part because you anticipate them. So you get a lot of like post-consumption happiness. Then right. when you're experiencing them, they usually go pretty well, although, you know, usually vacations are pretty expensive. And so if we think it's not <laughs> living up to the value ratio of like what we pay, then maybe we'll on uh, we'll have some daily fluctuations around certain experiences that we think we're not getting the, the cost benefit analysis, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. But on reflection, experiences are really positive. 
And they're especially positive in reflection for social relationships because you talk about and co almost like co-create or relive the experience of that nice vacation with your partner um, after the fact. And that can build closeness and, and relationship satisfaction. So on net, because uh, experiences are so vivid um, and they have this potential to have this social connection or social capital building um, experience, they're really good both in anticipation, usually during the experience and in retrospect. However, although material purchases kind of get a bad rap, like experiences are way better, experiences provide you sort of like with more intense emotional reactions. Like gotcha. while you're experiencing it, it's going to produce way more gains in happiness than a material purchase. And it's almost like comparing apples to oranges. Of course, a vacation uh, to Hawaii is going to make you feel way happier than uh, a new table uh, mm. that you were like looking forward to and you bought and it looks nice in your apartment. Um, but as it turns out, you do get some lower intensity, more consistent joy from that table every time you use it. It eventually fades right. and it's so right. it's not as, as intense right. as an experience, but it's not like material purchases do nothing. If you buy a new pair of sneakers and you go on a run, you get a little bit of satisfaction every time you use it, um, but it doesn't have this kind not of lasting. social, yeah, it's not yeah. as lasting as experiences. Yeah, yeah, well, the experiences are, are, are great too. Like, like you said, I, I had as much fun planning the trip uh, as I, as I, almost as I did on the trip. I mean, because that's just kind of what I like to, like to do, you know. But now I'll flip this around in her favor because, you know, if she read A Time for Happiness, you know, she would say, well, this is why we order, you know, HelloFresh or somebody because it saves me time from something I don't love to do. And I can invest that time in something I love to do. And so that's what that paper was largely about, some of those kinds of choices, right? Yeah, Training. and I... I think yeah, that's a really important distinction, right? So like in general, uh, labor economists talk about this and I talk about this um, in my research too. Why it's so, so I like, I'm in a department with a bunch of economists and they always want me to be very prescriptive, like spend X amount of money on this very specific thing and it will produce this amount of return on happiness. Utility, dollars. utility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, I can't do that because everyone sort of has different preferences. And so what you actually want to think about when you're trying to get to having more and better time in your own personal life is maximizing your U index. This is what labor economists say, um, or kind of like the Marie Kondo method of time use, like get rid of stuff you don't like and fill it with things that bring you joy is sort of the layperson way of, of talking about that. So you really want to minimize negative experiences and maximize positive. So even in this scenario that we were just talking about, you might, you know, really like planning the vacation. And so that's a positive use of time for you. Maybe your wife doesn't like that so much. Right. And so you do more of the planning and she does, you know, more of the like picture organizing after the trip. So you really want to be thinking about calibrating what you spend your time on, both in the act of making a decision and in the actual consumption of the experience based on what makes you feel happy in the moment. Um, and so even when you think about buying time, which is one of the strategies I talk about to trade money for time is outsourcing things that you don't like doing, you really have to underscore the part you don't like doing. Like some people like cooking, so you don't want to outsource that. Or we found even more nuanced results, which is like some, you most people like cooking, they just don't like shopping. So instead of getting a takeout, you might actually want to get HelloFresh or something where you're cooking the ingredients so that you get to have maximized, yeah, yeah, the maximize the amount of time you spend in the enjoyable part and minimize the time you spend in the unenjoyable part. Right. 
Well, there's a danger in that too, though, because I enjoy my work. I mean, I'm passionate about my work. And if I don't block out time for other things, I'll work all the time. And it's not a sacrifice to me because I enjoy the work, but it doesn't make me, I'm not a very well-rounded person and my relationships suffer. Uh, Things that actually matter more to me than work. But, you know, so you do have to be conscious about this. Yeah. And there is even like uh, some quadratic effects. um, So it kind of levels off even for buying time. So it's very similar to what you're saying. This is all like in moderation or something to some extent, because we actually find that if you outspend too much money outsourcing, so like spending money to get other people to do things you don't like is generally good for happiness. But if you do it too much, it actually undermines happiness because it undermines your perceived control of your life. And so similarly, even when we like work, if we do it too much, it starts coming at the cost of other things that are fundamental to human well-being, like social relationships uh, or physical health, things that also are really strong contributors of happiness. So, you know, it's not kind of enough to sort of take all of these suggestions in isolation or max- maximize on them. You do have to be thinking about, well, what are you actually, where do the trade-offs start happening where you're spending too much money in one direction or too much right. time doing one thing that it's actually impeding your ability to have exactly as you said a more rounded life which is important for happiness right well and there's also a guilt factor sometimes when you outsource something you could do i have found is that yeah we have a <laughs> yeah we have a paper on this so it actually comes from a variety of different things we've we've been starting to look at autonomous products obviously as the new time-saving purchases 2.0 um and we find so, so say that again uh, looking at what yeah, autonomous products like okay. autonomous vehicles gotcha, and gotcha, like gotcha. Roombas and things right. and how consumers okay. feel yeah. about Vacuuming that. Vacuuming the floor, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we find similar effects across two papers where in one paper, if we have to outsource to a specific other person, like a house cleaner, we feel way worse and guiltier about that because we're like burdening a specific other person with our dislike task. That makes us feel pretty bad. Um, you can kind of get around this by playing some mental gymnastics about thinking about what you would do at that time instead. So that kind of like makes the guilt feel a little bit less for people because it's more of a justification. And then in our autonomous products paper, we show that if people, if we simply like make autonomous products have person-like features, like like name the Roomba or some of these like robots, like they're more robots than just sort of like a vacuum cleaner. Uh, that people actually feel more guilt about those kinds of purchases. Delegating to them. (laughs) Um, Interesting. Yeah, so guilt does play a role in whether or not um, we are going to make time-saving purchases, but culture also plays a role. So we don't want to look lazy. And in cultures with high Protestant work ethic and high work values, like in the U.S., we worry that making these purchases, if other people know about them, will signal that we're lazy and unable to keep up with the demands of work and life, which is part of a barrier that gets in the way of of people actually purchasing or asking for the help they need is they're worried what other people will see, like how other people will judge them. Um, And so it is kind of like, it brings up this broader discussion around how we need to be changing uh, our expectations of ourselves in and each other in society to really get these time values to stick. Very cool. So I've got just two, two more cool final things here as we wrap up. Um, so this show is all about money and meaning. And I, I started this whole exercise, as I mentioned, a few years back after I went through sort of a, not a midlife crisis, but it was just an understanding that there's more to life than money and that I was put on this earth for a purpose. And the money is just giving me freedom to go do what I'm called to do. And, but what I, what I found through the Halftime Institute that I went to uh, back in 2013 is that 
um, you know, we do get more, uh, we do get some satisfaction out of serving, helping other people. And I think uh, you've written a little bit about volunteerism and how those kinds of things can enjoy, uh, it can enhance happiness. So can you speak to that briefly and uh, in these final moments? Yeah, so one of the best ways to spend our valuable resources, i.e. time and money, is to use them in the service of others. So I've done quite a bit of research on this topic, actually. Um, and one of the most striking effects I think I found is that um, we've shown in a, a six-week-long study that um, individuals who are randomly assigned to give money away to other people showed significant reductions in systolic and diastolic blood pressure over the course of the study that were comparable to starting a new exercise program. And we've also wow. observed these effects, um, both of giving time and giving money for um, happiness and positive mood. There's a few factors that are really important to keep in mind. Um, so that, that, that improved their physical health, just uh, similar to exercise? Yeah. I mean, we're not uh, advocating for not exercising too, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it does, does have a pretty uh, positive effect. Um, there's a few critical ingredients to understanding when helping is likely to lead to happiness. So we, it does need to feel like something that is out of our own control or volition. It has to be something we feel like we're choosing to do because it resonates with our goals, our values, our purpose. So we have an in-law effect in one of my papers, whereas if, if you give more money to your in-laws, it actually is associated with higher blood pressure. It's like a negative. Hybrid, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, and, and we link this to this idea that it's really important to feel like you're choosing how to help and when to help and who to help and that it aligns with your personal values back to the point you're making. Right. Um, it's also really important to see the direct impact of the help that you're providing. So you really want to leverage and look for helping opportunities that allow you to uh, interact directly with the recipients of right. your potential help because that's going to maximize the happiness and health impacts as well. Right. And, and you have the relational element, obviously, exactly. as, as well, that builds on that. Well, this has been really fascinating. Mike, you have anything you want to chime in on or ask about? I don't, I, I've, I've sort of dominated our time no, here. No, no, that, that's, I, that's okay. I, I usually do. No, that's fine. I, the only, I, how do you apply this to today, I, I guess, Dr. Willen? I mean, we're, we're dealing with um, a time when most people probably have a little bit more time than they might like. They're either, their routines have changed and so on. And I was really struck at the beginning when you said, hey, we, we have more control over our happiness than we really, really gave ourselves credit for. So how do you apply all this to, to right now? How, what would you tell someone right now with what they're going through with this coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, I mean, this whole pandemic in general um, actually has kind of undermined our control, even though we might have control over some aspects of our day. You know, there's a broader societal we're global uh, force at work. And so there's a couple of things. I've been thinking a lot about this and doing a little bit of research on this topic, um, given that COVID is dramatically changing the way we spend our time and our mental health uh, for a lot of people. So um, one thing I would encourage people to do is to think about how what they're doing, like what parts of what they're doing on an everyday basis now are behaviors that they would want to continue doing in the future. So if you walk more, you have more family dinners, um, you know, you're truly taking weekends when you never used to do that before, whatever it might be, because you feel more licensed because that's, you know, people are more family focused, family first now than they used to be. Try to write down exactly how you're going to do this when we go back, when you end up going back to the office. So coming up with a clear plan of like who, what, where, when, why, and how you're going to enact some of these positive time use changes that you've observed for yourself during this time will allow you to use this as an opportunity as a fresh start to kind of reimagine 
this was a forced experiment. And if we were all told we would be working from home or our company was like, here's an experiment, you're going to work from home for the next three months, we'd all laugh and say, you must be kidding, you're crazy. But here we are living this forced experiment. So what are some things that we're learning that are positive and like actually document that, write it down and try to come up with an action plan for continuing these positive behavioral changes going forward into the new normal, whatever that might be or look like. I think another thing that's really important is we might also be doing a lot of behaviors and activities right now that we feel like we're not, don't have perfect control over our kids aren't in school. Um, you know, we might be doing more housework than we're used to, or we might have less of a commute into the office. And so we're kind of struggling with work-life transitions. One, one other kind of, um, point that I talk about in my book is this idea of reframing time. So there's all this work by Aliyah Crum at Stanford University suggesting that the same activity can be thought of in different ways with downstream consequences for happiness. So when they took janitors um, and house cleaners and they asked these janitors and house cleaners to reframe the extra physical activity that they get in their jobs, which most people saw as a demand, as a way to meet the requirements for physical activity in their day as recommended by the government to be a healthy person, they actually became more fit and were more energized by their jobs. So is there any way of kind of reframing any of the time that you have in your life that you can't control and that might be kind of negative, like, you know, feeling like you're 24 seven working and being a parent of young kids and reframing some of that time as an opportunity to spend time with your kids during a formative period of their lives. So yeah. is there any of this kind of reframing that we can do to even make the negative aspects of the current situation more positive? And then also thinking about how to kind of continue that forward. One final other thing around this separation between work and life is I have an ongoing research project on this. And one thing I've heard a lot about people who are seeming to navigate the working from home environment better than others is they're creating rituals for themselves. So, you know, I'm not doing this right now because I'm going to go for a jog after we chat, but fully put, you know, put on work clothes before going into your home office. Right. Try to do as much as you can to delineate work and home right now and create these little rituals for yourself in the day, um, coffee at the same time, dinner at the same time to keep yourself on track and on schedule when none of us really have the routine that we're used to. Yeah, those are great ideas. Great ideas. Thank you so much. So, uh, so um, Professor Willis, can you just uh, let us all know how we can follow you on various social media or find your book or anything else you would like to, uh, you know, have our audience know about you and what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So I'm definitely findable on the internet. Um, you could, I have a Twitter page and my book is available for pre-order on Amazon and will be available um, October 6th uh, in hard copy from Harvard Business Publishing. And again, uh, my book is uh, Time Smart. So uh, I, I very much welcome, people can reach out to me, send me emails, tweet at me. I'm very responsive. I love hearing what people have to say and how they're trying to think about being time smart in their own lives. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. As I mentioned, we, you know, we have these broad conversations about a lot of different topics, but this one I think is really timely in terms of obviously the current environment, but also, I mean, I think it's valid every, every day in how to be intentional. I, hear, I heard that word a little bit uh, about what brings us happiness and joy and try to make sure that we understand that there are, it is a good investment to create time for useful, valuable, meaningful things. Yeah. Uh, so thank you again for your uh, your time today and, and sharing with us. And Mike, any final comments or no. you just wrap us up? No, that's the, it. Thank, thank you. One. Thank you very much. All, All right. right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Awesome. 
Thank you. All right. So there you have it, folks. Another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. I hope you found today's discussion helpful just as I did. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out previous episodes as well as as Jeff's blog at tandemgrowth.com forward slash perspectives. Also, you can check out the podcast on iTunes. Check us out there and be sure to go ahead and rate us there as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.